Welcome to Yes, We Do Adopt, a podcast dedicated to the experiences, challenges, and triumphs of adoptive families headed by people of color. My name is Malika Parker, and I am the director of the Adoptive Parents of Color Collaborative, a project of PACT and Adoption Alliance whose mission is to serve adopted children of color. On each episode of Yes, We Do Adopt, we will bring you stories that highlight our voices and perspectives and uplift our work to elevate people of color parenting through adoption and foster care. On our very first episode, I have the immense pleasure of welcoming Katie Winan. Katie works with Pats and Adoption Alliance as the adoption specialist. Welcome to the show, Katie. Okay, so I'm all like super excited right now. <laughs> like, about all myself together. Um, okay, so this is the first of our series of interviews. Um, we're going to be focusing on adoption and with a specific um, intention around uh, the community for people of color who have adopted. Um, so I wanted to talk with you today, mm-hmm. Katie Winan, yes. <laughs> adoption specialist with Pat and Adoption Alliance, um, to just like hear about your work and the things that you're doing here at Pat to support adoptees and uh, to really um, encourage folks to think about adoption in a different way. Can you tell me about your work here? Sure. I am an adoption social worker for our agency. So I work with pre-adoptive parents that are coming to the process, hoping to adopt an infant. And right now I have about 10 families. All of them are families of color. So it's either a single parent who identifies as a person of color or two parent families. Um, A lot of my families right now are interracial. Um, So typically one black parent, one Caucasian parent. I have a few where they are both parents of color but not of the same race. Um, and I also have been working with expectant parents for the last couple months who are looking to place, and all of the women I've been talking with um, have been black women. Um, We've had a few Asian women over the summer that came in but did not lead to placement, so I do some of that work. Uh, We also do home studies, so we go into homes um, of our families and do the home study process for them, and then I... Outside of placement, I run a group for adult adoptees of color. We meet the first Tuesday of every month. Um, We've been meeting for four years, and we just had our biggest group of 17 adoptees, and we're all people of color, some of us in transracial placements, some of us in same-race placements. What is, from all of the work that you're doing, what's the biggest takeaway that you have? Like, What's the biggest thing that you wish everyone knew? Um, how important it is to have people that look like you or understand you on a different level. I, about a year ago, right before we became an agency, I was at a party and a white woman said, oh, you guys are going to start doing home studies. That's going to be so great for these families of color to have a person of color come into their home and review their home and not have it be a white person um, and the dynamics that are in that. And I was, I paused and I honestly had not thought of that. Um, and then I've done two home studies and my coworker, who's also a woman of color, both of my coworkers are women of color, did home studies as well. And I definitely could see that. Like when I sat in the room with these families of color, there was just a sense of 
relief and um, they were a little more comfortable and a little more open, um, a little more jokey around things because they knew I could get it and I didn't realize that it would be like that. So I told my coworker the same thing and she came back after her first home study visit and she was like, girl, you were right. She said they were so relaxed, like it was just a different dynamic. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge takeaway to just have people that look like you come into your home. Um, to reveal, like it's a nerve wracking process, the home study visits. So that's been important. And then I also had um, an adoptive parent of color come to us maybe three years ago, and they came to the physical office, sat in my office to ask me some questions, and he just, he said, I'm sorry, I just have to pause, but he was an African-American parent, adoptive parent, and he said, I'm sorry, I just, the woman at the front desk is black, and you, what are you? And I said, <laughs> I'm Colombian, and he was just like, yeah, um, every other adoption agency I've walked into, nobody looks like me, so he said, just this already is great. So those, for sure, have been the biggest takeaways. What's the hardest part about your job? The hardest part about my job is... Ooh. Probably working with... Okay, I'll be completely honest. Working with parents of color who have been waiting for over two years, but watching Caucasian families adopt black infants in three months, eight months, a year and a half, they don't work with us, they work with other agencies, um, or I see them on social media, like Pantsuit Nation and all this other stuff, and it's these white couples that just keep posting pictures of their newborn African-American, Latino, Asian, or other children of color photos. And meanwhile, in my program, I have two-parent black family that's been waiting for over two years, and I've seen black infants go to white families in those two years kind of nonstop, that's the hardest. Mm -hmm. um, they're not in my program, so it's a little bit different, but it's just hard for me to see because my families are waiting for so long. Um, and then I don't like confrontation, so parents <laughs> that are upset that they don't have a placement yet, and I just kind of have to take the brunt of um, their disappointment. And I know it's really hard, but I'm also just, I'm not out here trying to find a baby for you. I'm here to support women who might not be able to parent and then I need a family and want a family of color and it's complicated, but those are probably some of the hardest. One of the things that you talk about a lot is um, the your orientation to adoption being around the child and not being focused on the adoptive parents or the potential adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's important? Child-centered is what we say at PACT. As a social worker, I mean, I took an oath and signed my ethics um, in terms of, like, honest, ethical, transparent work. And it's human life we're talking about, um, not a commodity or a... which a lot of agencies tend to treat adoption as. So... Um, our focus for sure is the child, child-centered. And my coworker, my director, and I have had numerous conversations where a, a baby has been placed and post-placement visits are happening, but the adoptive parents are not that responsive, just all these things. And we sit and reflect a lot about, well, what is in the best interest of the child and what is child-centered? Um, it's also, I come to this work personally as an adoptee myself. 
So knowing that I had absolutely no say and knowing that these babies and basically every adoptee, unless they were older through the foster care system, had no say, um, to be able to be an advocate and have a voice for this tiny human and think about what would be in their best interest. Um, and I know the hardest, I said one of the hardest was the adoptive parents that don't have a baby after two years. And I feel bad for them because I've grown to know these families and really like them and know that they would be great. But then in the meantime, I'm also like, well, it's a good thing that we haven't had to do a placement in right. over two years or for your family because that means a family is kept intact mm -hmm. and a woman or a couple did not have to place their child. Um, so, yeah, keeping it child-centered, finding families for children, not children for families, uh, is also really important. Mm -hmm. When you say that, <clears throat> sometimes to families, do they... Do you get pushback on that ever? Um, do you get feedback on, um, we're not finding babies for you, we're finding families for the babies? It's interesting. The families that stick with PACT and work with our program are on the same wavelength as us. So when I say that, a lot of them pause and say, oh, okay. And then part of their homework is actually to read The Family of Adoption by Joyce McGuire Pavo, who uses that term in her book, and that's where I first heard it when I was training with her. So then they read the book, and then they come back, and they're like, oh, Joyce wrote about that. She's also adopted. She gets it. So they realize, okay, and those are the families that stick with us or do our education. And then the families that get upset by it are the ones that don't care, just want... I had a family say this to me back in 2013. I just need a woman to get pregnant Give me a baby so I can become a mother. Right. So that family did not enter our program right. and did not stick with us because they didn't like how we presented it. Um, the families that get it and like our approach stick with us. Mm -hmm. I think what I've also found is those families that don't like our approach, um, both families of color and transracial families, like you talk about race too much, you talk about the challenges of adoption, we want to hear the positives and kind of all this other stuff, they usually come back to us when the kid is around four or older. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it happen. I've been here for almost seven years and I have seen it happen where a family came to us and their son was three and now he's about eight. And I was like, they'll be back. Mm -hmm. And they came back mm -hmm. in the last year and a half. Why do you, so at PACT we talk a lot about Birth, first families, we talk a lot about communication, a lot about making sure that young people have access, that adoptees, young and old, have access to their stories. Um, and sometimes we talk to people and their immediate response is, just like you said, like it's too negative, it's mm -hmm. like there's joy in adoption. Um, what what do you think is happening for people when they have that response um, to mm -hmm. our, our orientation around adoption? I think people have looked at how the world or media or Hollywood or whatever portrays adoption, and they think, oh, it's so positive, it's so great, um, I'm doing a great thing. They also think about foster care a lot, I believe, and they think private adoption is just like foster care. Like, I'm going to help a kid. 
but it's completely different actually. So since we do private adoption, I think when we tell people that they're just kind of, it's really eye-opening and they're scared, um, I think they're afraid to realize, oh wow, somebody's calling me out on A, B, and C for what I thought. Like we had a family that called us and they said, we've done 28 hours of adoption education, but they came to a consultation with you, I believe, saying we want closed, we're not going to tell the child until they're 18, um, we're not going to talk about it at all, just kind of everything that was not our stance. Right. And we send them a letter back saying, we don't think you're that, well, we say you might not be a fit for our program. I was about to say, we don't think you're that great for our program. <laughs> but I say, you might not be the right fit for our program. Here's why. If you disagree, like here are the homework steps we would like you to complete. And we never heard back from that family. So I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'm watching This Is Us. But if they were actually deeply watching This Is Us, right. they would see how many challenges the transracial adoptee brings up. Um, and now This Is Us is talking about foster care, so they would mm -hmm. see what that process looks like if they were really deeply reflecting on it. Or they say, oh, I see Hollywood and how great these kids are doing, mm -hmm. or I see this, or whatever's going on. Or I'm seeing families separated at the border, and I just want to go save that kid. Help. Yeah, I want to help, and it's a lot more than that, and it's not the paperwork being signed. It is lifelong. Like, I run in my group, I have a 77-year-old woman that has come to group because it is lifelong, and there's stuff she still needs to talk about because it wasn't talked about, and stuff she still needs to process because she didn't have the space. Yeah. So, and I, I also tell families, I say, you can go to any other agency in this country, most likely any other agency, And they'll give you all the rainbow and sunshine stories mm -hmm. that you want. I said, but we're not going to do that. Because like I said, you'll be back in five years right. when your kid says, why do I not see my birth father? Right. Why does this not, why does this happen? Why does, and they just wanted sunshine and rainbow, so they weren't prepared. Mm -hmm. When you talk to transracial families versus same-race families or transracial families where the parent is a person of color mm -hmm. um, but parenting a child of a different race and you compare some of the experiences um, what do you think are like the consistent things that come up regardless of who the parent is in adoption the consistent things that come up are for sure birth family um And even, and I don't know if I'll be able to say this cohesively or make sense, definitely birth family stuff, um, and how do we talk about adoption. Mm -hmm. But one of the biggest things is where people live, I guess, in class mm -hmm. demographics. Mm -hmm. So adoption is not cheap. So I have wealthy white families and I have wealthy families of color. And a lot of times it's happened more than I can count on two hands. I'll have a family of color, two black parents, one black parent, one black parent, one white parent. Um, and because of their income bracket, they live in a predominantly white area. Mm -hmm. So even though they are a two-parent black family and the child is going to have them, they live in a predominantly white area, so the child is still going to have some challenge 
challenges or struggles. Um, I've heard from people of color raised, not placed for adoption, raised with their families, but raised in predominantly white, went to private school with predominantly white kids. They were the only black kid. And their experience translates very closely to the transracial adoptee experience. Mm -hmm. So definitely class, neighborhood, where you live, economic differences, um, even amongst uh, my families of color. I don't know if that answered that or made sense, but that's for sure where I've seen. And they don't want to move. And I mean, a lot of them have a religious or spiritual community or family nearby. Okay. So there's definitely more. But there have been people that live. I had a black family that lived like in the middle of nowhere, Washington State. Mm-hmm. And they even said in their paperwork, I have to pause and do a double take when I see another black person in the supermarket. So then, okay, what is that going to be like for your child? And that's also what I hear from white parents who live in the middle of nowhere, Maine, and say this, oh, (laughs) we don't ever see black people around here, and all the black kids we do are also being raised by white parents or kind of stuff like that. Or they see other people of color, but they're Latinos or they're Asians, and so it's not reflective of their child. Yeah. And... With adoption, um, I think sometimes people underestimate the importance of connection, mm-hmm. um, and so it's it can be traumatizing to be the only person of color, especially living in a society that's so racialized. Mm-hmm. Um, but then within adoption, we don't often spend a lot of time talking about like then you have a second loss, you have an additional loss if you're the only adoptee, Mm -hmm. and you're the only person of color, even if the people at home look the same as you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's a really important, like the class differential is really important. We don't talk about a lot. Um, And and part of that might be that there's uh, an underestimation of how many people of color adopt through private agency. Mm -hmm. Um, So through foster foster adopt, there might not be as much of, there's not always as much of a class differential, but... For sure, in private adoption. For sure. And that also then creates um, barriers between the family, the families, because there's different life experiences also. Yeah, definitely. What is, um, as you think about the world of adoption, um, your work and the families that come to PACT, either through placement or through support, what's the one thing that you wish would be? or multiple things that you wish would be different about adoption, including, like, if you feel like it shouldn't exist. Like, what are all of, what are, what's the thing that you really wish would shift about the work? So I just had a high school senior email me for her final project on transracial adoption, and her question was, her questions were right along that line. And I just kept repeating over and over I think the ultimate dream is that there is no more need for adoption, right? That, and it's a deeper, I think a lot of people are like, well, those parents didn't want those kids. It is much deeper. It's the system that is failing. Mm -hmm. It's the systemic, the institutional, like all of other things that are creating the need for adoption and for foster care and stuff like that. So I said, ideally, I wish there was none of it but I know that's going to take years, 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 or it will never happen. Mm -hmm. So if it has to keep happening, I said, one, I would like there to be universal mandatory race and awareness education for white people that are adopting across race, um, and that they are not allowed to 
say they would adopt a black, a Latino, Asian, biracial, multiracial infant until they completed a pretty extensive course. PACT has one called Building Communities Across Cultures. It's still not enough, but it's way more than most white parents are getting. And I've learned that through our PACT camps where we have white families who come to camp and they're like, we never got any of this. We were just told, if you want to adopt faster, adopt a black child and just love them and you'll be fine. And now they're coming to us when their kids are even younger than like 12. They're coming to us that my kid is four and hates their hair and their skin color and wants to be white and stuff like that. And they just weren't prepared at all. So there should be mandatory um, in both private and foster adopt. Absolutely mandatory and not just a 30-minute video or a day-long workshop that some agencies have right now. It would need to be six months to a year, Mm -hmm. I would say. Um, So I would say that for transracial, because we've done it here, and I've had white families that start the process and then say, oh, wow, yeah, like we really can't do this. We cannot support a child of color. We're just going to, nope, we will adopt a Caucasian infant. And that's a victory to us because that's Mm child-centered because they're understanding that they cannot support this child. So that's what I would require or want for transracial placements. And then I think for adoption in general, for same-race placements, I think just the dialogue about how to talk about it. Um, It's still happening now with same-race families that they don't talk about it. And then the Mm -hmm. kid finds out when they're 7 or 18 or even way later. Um, Daryl McDaniels from Run DMC didn't find out until he was 30-something. Yeah, and it just it rocked his world, and he could pass, in quotes, uh, because he was black and his parents were black. So I think a dialogue around talking about it and acknowledging it, and then for sure, open adoption just across the board, especially in foster care, um, and having families prepared and educated around what open adoption can mean and what it looks like and the benefits of it, um, and better support Obviously, if there was no adoption, there wouldn't be birth parents, but since there is going to be adoption, just better support and awareness and platforms for birth families and birth parents to have a voice. Well, thank you so much, Katie. You're welcome. I appreciate you, and I appreciate the work you do and how you push all of us to think deeper about how to support our little people. Yeah. They're also my people. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Thank you, Katie, for your words and your wisdom. To find out more about the work that Katie is doing, the work of the Adoptive Parents of Color Collaborative, and Yes, We Do Adopt, you can go to www.pactadopt.org. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks.